0: A very warm welcome to one and all this morning. and uh, again, it's a privilege to have the opportunity of sharing God's word this morning. You know, when I look out this morning around me, I, um, I was just drawn back to something I watched uh, last night, and it was about persecution in China. and there was two life stories: um, one a young brother, the other a young sister in the Lord and their experiences there. And the persecution, it's relentless. It goes through the school system. It goes through their villages. And when people are picked out by what I think was the CCP, I guess the Chinese Communist Party, it's, uh, it's unbelievable what they have to go through. And the beatings, the deprivation, the imprisonment, it was really eye-opening. And uh, I just looked this morning, I think how blessed we are. We don't experience that. And uh, these people were just happy. I'm not saying they're happy that they have to go through such such a terrible trial. But um, happy to to know the Lord is with them. And that they serve him. So, a real eye-opener. I thought China actually had a little bit of a a reprieve. But this went through from 2002 right up to recently. And um, it's just as bad as ever it was there. And with the technology now and the surveillance they have. They literally can track every individual you know, to everywhere at any time. And it's um, pretty eye-opening. But that's not her lot this morning, not, not at this time anyway. So we have the privilege of having the freedom to preach the Word this morning and to go into the streets this afternoon to preach publicly as well. So as long as that season lasts, we thank the Lord and we praise His wonderful name. So I'll just open it in a word of prayer. We just thank You, Lord, this morning. We do thank You, Lord, for the privileges we enjoy, Lord. and uh, We don't take them for granted. And we just thank you that this morning we can um, open up your scriptures. And we want to look this morning at um, what you underwent, Lord, when you were tempted and when you were trialed. And uh, just speak to us, Lord, through these uh, words this morning, Lord. And I just pray that our hearts will be touched and our attention will be drawn to you this morning, Lord. Amen. Amen. So I wanted to to, uh, minister this morning on Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. And it concerns the temptation. Some commentators don't like to use the word temptation. They prefer to use the word trial because it's in the context of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever word word you choose. And uh, in the preparation, I had a look at Matthew. I also had a look at uh, where else this is mentioned in the uh, parallel Gospels. And it's mentioned briefly in, in Mark, only two verses. But there's also an almost identity account in Luke. And it's in almost in the same as chapter 4, verse 1 to 14 there. And it's slightly different in Luke, in that uh, the order of the temptations is not the same. Two and three are reversed. And I looked at this and I said, that's strange. What does that mean? And I thought about it. Well, it actually confirms really the veracity of scripture, because it's written by two different authors, and it's from their perspective. And we know if we actually uh, relate a story and pass it on, the detail changes perhaps as it goes down the line. But it's still accurate. And I just said, well, this really confirms these are not somebody doing carbon copies or or, um, fabricating. These are real-life accounts written by different individuals. So that was uh, something that I learned from the study, and it opened my eyes. So the Word of God is very reliable. It's most reliable. Amen. Okay, so the account of the temptation of our Lord, and as I said, it's a very similar account in the the other um, Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Luke. Now, it's interesting that Satan would choose to try and um, tempt the second person of the Godhead, and uh, the one through whom the universe was created, and uh, the one who was there at the beginning. And I guess you'd ask the question was he not out of his depth? Perhaps he considered that uh, he could make Jesus fall while he was contained in an earthly body. Now we know we've mentioned before here, I've mentioned before I think the hypostatic union, which is one of those theological terms that talks about God, or Jesus, sorry, being fully God and fully man. And that mystery of how divinity and man can be contained together at the same time. And it is a mystery. It's something we don't understand, how God himself can limit himself to, to human flesh. Uh, We look at uh, John verse 114, it says there, And the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now Satan knows his destiny, but it does not stop his endless efforts to bring about spiritual destruction and mayhem. Just as like what I mentioned, what's going on there in China, in the lives of individual believers. Relentless, he doesn't give up. And I think we get an insight into his uh, makeup, perhaps, if we looked at uh, John, also chapter, the Gospel of John, and chapter eight, verse forty-four. And Jesus, talking to the Pharisees, he says, "Ye are of the Father; ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own." For he is a liar and the father of it. Now it would seem that Satan does what he does because it is who he is. He can't do anything else. He's just ultimate evil. Now I mentioned the last time when I spoke a few weeks back, I think I mentioned this crimson thread that goes through the Bible. And it runs from the time of Genesis through to Jesus. And I mentioned how Satan has worked through wicked men all through this period to destroy or kill that seed or to to mar it or to corrupt it in some way. Now we have Jesus present in this passage of Matthew. He's present on this earth in bodily form. And Satan himself tries to seduce him spiritually. So it's interesting, interesting um, the uh, context of where where this is happening. Now what were the consequences of, of this? The consequences are very grave because if Satan has succeeded in tempting and, and um, bringing Jesus to, to a fall, as it we were. Well, there be no perfect sacrifice for us here this morning and we would be all lost with no hope of redemption. We wouldn't be standing what we just did, doing what we just done there, commemorating what the Lord had done because it would have been of no effect because we've not have had a perfect sacrifice. So um, this particular passage of Scripture, it's very, very important in our walk. Just to to gauge and to realise who Jesus is and what sort of a sacrifice he was perfect, unblemished, unspoiled, uncorrupted. Perhaps now we'll just take a moment and I will read that um, passage of scripture out, looking at Matthew chapter four, and picking it up in verse one. Then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. Now, just to take a pause there, it's it's interesting if you look at the account in Luke, it says that he was tempted almost straight away. The tempting began straight away. Reading this, you would think perhaps, well, he fasted 40 days, and then at the end, this temptation came. But no, it actually hit him straight away. So it's 40 days of constant temptation, culminating in a severe temptation. Testing, which we we'll look at shortly. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, come, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taking him up into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. <clears throat> and saith to him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee and their hands. They shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus said unto him, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taken him up into an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And said unto him, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then say Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Amen, Lord, we thank you for your word. Now I mentioned context. What's the context of this? Well, reading in the previous chapter, the context is that he's just come from the river Jordan, He's just been baptised to fulfil all righteousness. We have a scene there where the Spirit descends as a dove on his uh, being, on his body, shoulder. And the Lord, the the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I know people say, well, you don't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but there is a Trinity in live action. The Father, the Son and the Spirit at the same time communicating. Now, he's identified at that time with sinners. In the baptism, he's just undergone. And now he's about to be identified again, but this time with sinners in severe temptation. And it's all part of God's master plan that the Spirit of God leads Jesus and says immediately into the wilderness to be tempted. So I'd stop there and say even Satan is subject to God. Now we can stop and just look at the contrast between these two scenes. Between what transpired at the Jordan and what's taking place in the wilderness. So from these glorious events, and it was a glorious event to, to hear the, the Father speak from heaven and to see the spirit ascend and to and to hear this commendation of a son. We're into a situation of wilderness in the Judean Desert. Now I've been in the Judean Desert and I've been there in September and it's pretty warm. I don't think you'd like to be there for any more than a few hours in the, in the high heat, not to mention 40 days. So it's extremely arid and a rugged place. It's, it's almost looking at it like the surface of the moon, desolate. He goes from a place of nourishment to a place of starvation, deprivation and weakness. Now thousands were present at the Jordan. Now, when he's in the wilderness, it's a time of solitude. He's on his own. It cannot not be the same for us, that uh, when we're amongst the crowd, we're hidden in the crowd, as it were. We can um, merge and blend into the background. We can disappear, as it were. And uh, it's very different when you're on your own, though. There is no one else to, to uh, I guess, to provide false bravado to or to, or to have light jesting or to, or to make a joke of things. It's just Jesus and the Father, God in heaven, and and of course Satan, as we see shortly. So a very, very different scene. From the voice of the Father calling out and saying about his beloved son, to the evil voice this time, the voice of temptation. We know there's a still, soft voice of the Holy Spirit. There's a very seductive voice also of Satan, of evil, Which we have to be aware of. So, from heavens to the presence of evil. Why was Jesus tempted? So, he did not need to endure temptation to prove anything or for his own spiritual growth because he was perfect in all ways. He endured temptation so that he could identify with me and you and to demonstrate his sinless character. And we can have a look at Hebrews 2, verse 18. For in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to secure, it says in the Old King James, or to aid them that are tempted. And Hebrews 4.15 it says, For we have a high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was not always tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So why was Jesus tempted? So that's just a couple of ideas there and thoughts on that. So why are we tempted? We're never tempted by the Holy Spirit. In James 1.13 it says, Let no man say, When he is tempted, I am tempted of a God. For God cannot be tempted of evil, neither tempted he any man. And it goes on in verse fourteen to explain where this comes from. It's from our own lusts. That's the um, the source within. Our own corrupt hearts and our own fallen nature are the source of the problem. And Satan can act on those things and use them. You could, however, be put in a situation where we will experience temptation for trial or for testing, and the Lord can let this happen. And ultimately, it is for our benefit. Now, all of us are tempted. I notice when it says, uh, "Then was Jesus led, into, led up of the Spirit." Well, it's not just then; it's, it's, um, it's when. There is absolutely no doubt that the Christian will be tempted. Uh, tempted at his weakest point, I mean you could think of exa- of examples where it might be obviously when you 're very tired, well it could be after a um a tough family situation you might be having um, problems between husband and wife, well then Satan will see perhaps as an opportunity to come in and to stir things up there. It could be a fleshly temptation, it could be the temptation to turn to drugs perhaps or or um pornography or whatever, but uh, when you're at your lowest, the, the door can be open. And Satan, being the type of character he is, will hit you when you're at your weakest. So we need to be aware of these things and to be forearmed. Now, as I say, all of us are tempted, but none of us can say we were tempted to the degree that Jesus was, tempted by Satan himself. I don't know how many of us could say we're tempted by Satan. There's certainly a whole um, minion and horde of demons and fallen angels. We know that in the creation account that uh, one third of the angels fell. In Revelations it talks about 10,000 times 10,000. I haven't done the maths on that, but I think it's trying to convey an innumerable number. So there's a very, very large host of wicked and fallen um, demons in the spirit world that are available to be used to hit us in time of temptation and to to work against us and to to try and cause us to fall. And we need to be aware of that also. Now there's a saying, perhaps you've probably heard of it, that if it doesn't kill you, it'll fatten you. You can apply a parallel of that to this, that if you can actually come through temptation and endure it, temptation or trial and overcome it, you're going to be stronger at, at the out, at the outcome, and your spiritual stamina will be built up. Now how do you think you'd feel after 40 days in conditions i just described? You know, where it's um, very very high heat, desert, no water. We know that, uh, from medical um, information, you would probably last between 40, 45 to 60 days wouldn't last more than a week perhaps without water and um, I can even look back to my own country during the times of the uh, the trouble there um, many political prisoners as they call themselves decided to go on hunger strike and some died and some lasted up to 70 days but they died or, or those who survived came out permanently damaged and were never the same so it's, it's, um, this is a fairly serious thing to actually. Go through 40 days of fasting, and we could safely deduce that Jesus would have been in a very weakened state and physically. As he, you know, we spoke about being fully God and fully a man, but as a man, certainly weakened and at a low point and open to, um, to attack. Now, have other Bibl- biblical char- characters experienced something similar? Well, the answer is yes. If we look at Moses in Exodus 34, uh, specifically in verse 28 there, it mentions that he had 40 days and 40 nights with no food or water. Now that must have been supernatural, because in the natural, you can't survive that. You can't survive more than a week without hydration. Elijah, in one king's 198, it says that he went for 40 days and nights after being fed supernaturally by angels, So it was supernatural intervention. Now after enduring the fast and when he was at his weakest the onslaught of Satan was at its worst but Jesus learned obedience through suffering as it says in Hebrews uh, 5 verse 8 and the past is saying for me and you this morning that we often have to pick up our cross or we should pick it up daily but we will often have to suffer um, as part of that walk and it's just part of our Christian walk and it's a good thing to be aware of it it's a bad thing to come into the Christian walk and think, you've probably heard it said before, that it is a bed of roses or it is a pleasant walk. It's not necessarily so. And what I mentioned about China is, uh, is evidence of that. and It's, it's, um, it's not just China, there's people in Australia and people all over the world who are suffering. Perhaps people are suffering in a, as the only saved person in, in an unsaved household, suffering ridicule and torment and whatever. So, so there's a price to pay for, um, for following Jesus. So that's really all by by way of introduction. So let's look at his first temptation or trial if you prefer as as I mentioned earlier. And it it comes around the thought of the lust of the flesh. In verse 3 it says there when the tempter came to him he said if thou be the son of God command that these stones be made bread. As I mentioned earlier not if but when and that temptation is assured until the day we see Jesus face to face. Satan's not going to give up. He's going to try and try and try to um, take as many as he can with him and to destroy the lives of believers. So we have, to, we have to know that and have to be armed. And we'll talk about the armor and the arming that uh, we, can, we can use shortly. Now, if thou be the son of God, that's a fairly mocking tone. Did not the father just say, this is my beloved son, and I'll meet him shortly after? Satan is is mocking him over this. And, uh, you know, it would have been hard, I think. It would have been hard. I'll try to picture it in my mind's eye. Now, Jesus, he was sinless. He was sinless or we wouldn't be doing what we're doing this morning here. But he certainly wasn't trialless. He underwent great trial at this time. He went from a place of Exaltation, as we mentioned in the Jordan, to a place of extreme trial. Now it can be the same for us. We can be on a spiritual high one moment and then we can come under attack. Now I very clearly remember um, Gemma and myself, uh, Gemma was saved and I was saved shortly after. We were both back in Ireland and when I was saved, you know, I was a bit caught up in all that was going on and, as a new Christian and, and uh, just coming to terms of what actually happened. But immediately we were hit by by attack, and it was all around us. And um, only looking back after, we realized that this was demonic attack because it was just everything at once. It was friends turning against us, it was getting thrown out of places. It was was just quite, quite actually quite strange at the time for a new believer to experience it. But I know now from from reading the Word that this is attack, and perhaps many here could testify of something similar that Satan attacks, and um, perhaps often when we're at a high point. Or when we think, oh, things are going well or look at me or you know, the danger of pride comes in, we'll get attacked. And we need, to be, we need to be ready. Now Satan challenges Jesus to prove his deity by some miraculous works. And in effect, he's saying, why starve yourself to death when you can actually make food or bread materialise? And, materialize? and uh, I guess I, I put the question there. A sinner... When we're in in in, sinner, in sinful state or or sinners in general, do they not do the same when they mock Jesus? And uh, again, coming to the, the the point of the cross, we think of of um, when Jesus is on the cross, those walking by mocking him. If thou be the Son of God, if you know, if you can do this with the temple and whatever, come down and save yourself. This mocking attitude, and it's very common in unbelievers, the spirit of mocking, and um, you know. In the final times, as we come into them, men will be mockers and people will be deceived, and all these things we see arising. So mocking. Satan mocked Jesus. And Satan wanted to use Jesus to use his power to satisfy his physical wants. And uh, you know, it was a trap. It's a trap to catch Jesus out in his strengths. And how cunning is Satan? You know, although Satan is defeated, And, uh, you know, he was defeated at at the cross. He still has dominion for a period until the time he's judged on this earth. And we'd be wise as believers not to stray off the straight and narrow that if we put ourselves in his ground and his territory, well, then we're going to open ourselves up to to damage. So, you know, he's... um, you know, you often hear, like think it's, there's some, some song we used to sing, not here, it was in another church, about Satan being under my feet. And it's not really correct. He's under Jesus' feet. He's not really under our feet at all. And, um, you know, we, we're humans. We have a spirit. We're redeemed. The Holy Spirit's in us. But it's not our job to, to tackle Satan that way. You know, we have specific ways in prayer and in the Word of God. But he, uh, this idea that... Uh, you know, we can dance up and down, he's under our feet, is it's not, not scriptural. How should we respond to Satan and his demons when, when such things happen? Well, with the authority of God's word, just as De- Jesus did. And Jesus uses Deuteronomy eight, verse three, he says it's written Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. Now if Jesus quotes scripture, it's good for us to do also. Now what's more important to us today? To satisfy every want and to give in easily to, to fleshly things or to sacrifice and obey the Lord. Delayed gratification, we hear that term used. It's good for us. Otherwise we become soft and spoiled. So it's a good thing to, to resist. It's a good thing to, um, to make sacrifice. Whether it be fasting, whether it be giving up your time, whatever, whatever that 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 that, it, that is that you're called to do, these, these are good things, and they have a cost. Sacrifice has a cost, that goes without saying. Now Jesus could have pulled, and I just use the term spiritual rank here, on Satan. After all, he's fully God and fully man, but he doesn't. He responds here in a way that we can too, with the Word of God. And that's the wonderful example here that we see. That we can actually do what he did. We can respond with the word of God and um, use that against Satan in situations of trial and temptation. It's important for us to wield that sword or we're at a big disadvantage. It's a good thing to memorize scripture. It's a good thing to have scripture in your heart for such occasions. And we don't have to yield to his temptation. We know the Lord has said that He has made a way of escape for his children. So... You know, we bear that in mind that um, he won't put anything on us or allow anything to come upon us that we don't have the ability to to overcome, but in a a biblical way. The next temptation concerns the pride of life, and it says there in five to seven, then the devil taking him up into the holy city and setting him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saying unto him, If thou be the son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written. He shall give his angels charge concerning thee and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou dash thy feet upon a stone. Now when I read this, I wonder, did Satan conjure up some sort of a vision? How did this happen? Do you think it's in his power to physically take someone to another location? I mean, a lot of people who get involved in the occult are known to be involved in things, demonic things such as astral projection and going places. We hear of that. Or could it be like Philip and the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8? Or like Paul's vision later on in Acts? Or perhaps this is a specific occasion where the Lord allowed these things to take place. It doesn't say there, but it's just interesting to ponder on that. Does Satan know scripture? Yes, he does. This time he quotes from Psalm 91, but he omits some of the text. Again, Satan tries to trick Jesus into su- exercising supernatural power. So, in this first temptation, it was a physical need, hunger. This time, it's really for Jesus, in a sense, to show off his power. Remember, again, he was fully God and fully man and could do so. Now, we, mankind, in general, were like that. We're drawn to the spectacular, we're attracted by signs and wonders. You know, if we could do such things, it would puff us up and it would fill our pride. It would fill up our pride. You know, it's a, I can think of examples. It's like when you, when you, have, I guess, preachers who, they get a title like, um, they can always heal people, or they can, they can foretell the future for people, you know, or you know, prophesy in that way, or make gold dust materialise, or whatever. This gets attached to someone. And again, it's, it's not scriptural. The gifts of the Lord don't, don't operate that way. And it's easy for that person then to, to grow in pride and to build a ministry that's based on pride. And I don't have to name people. I mean, it's, it's evident. We see that there are ministries, or so-called ministries, that operate like that. And that's wrong. That's not the way it should be. Now, remember Simon the Sorcerer in Acts, again, chapter 8, he wanted that power operating in himself. Even though he um, you know he was he may have been saved it alludes to perhaps having come to the Lord. But he wanted that power and he had to be rebuked. He, it's the same thing. That attraction to to um, cause I guess my pride to to stand out among people and to be the showy one or to, to be able to do something that, that the others can't do and um, Operate in that way. And it's, um, that's sinful. Now not only does Satan taunt him by saying if you are the son of God he also says this time it is written. So in a way he's, he's mimicking Jesus in a, in a disrespectful manner. He says it's written also. Now if you are the son of God it is written. Now he knows scripture but because of who he is he cannot use it in truth. He twists it he manipulates and he deceives. Now, angels are mentioned here. Angels are ministering spirits answerable to God. It was never promised that they would come to our aid, particularly if we willingly put ourselves in danger. And I guess if you want to use a, paint a picture, try jumping out an airplane without a parachute, and you'll find out very quickly that um, we can't summon them like that. That's not the way it works. They're sent by God. And uh, we can't just um, do something silly and expect angels to save us. And Satan asked asked Jesus to to jump and that the the angels would rescue him. And uh, perhaps he wanted to see him um, dead. Perhaps he didn't want Jesus to go through the cross. I mean, there was method in, in what he was doing, there was a reason. Now I guess the warning is there for us as believers that we should rightly divide the word of God as Jesus did. And a false preacher can deceive, he can manipulate you through scripture, or he can use scripture out of context, or he can not employ the the whole counsel of God. And what does Jesus do this time again? He he replies from Deuteronomy, this time 6.16. It is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. God is not a genie. He's not there for us to um, grant our wishes every time we we want something. That He must not tempt Him that way. That we must approach Him in reverence, in fear, and accept His answers as what's good for us. Final temptation is the lust of the eyes. And reading then in verse 8 to 10, it says, Again, the devil, taking Him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showed Him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and say it unto him all these things shall I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Again there's no shortcut from the cross. Satan as I mentioned earlier has got temporary dominion because of the sin of Adam but ultimately the kingdoms are not his to give and if you recall Psalm 2 which we looked at a few weeks ago in verse 8 it says they're asking me And I'll give thee the heathen or the nations for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. That's to Jesus. They don't belong to Satan. He's got temporary dominion only and his time will come when he has to go through judgment and he'll be dealt with. Jesus also made it clear that his kingdom was not of this world. And he does that in John 18, verse 36. So, um, Why would he be attracted by by the offer of an earthly kingdom when his kingdom is not of this world? Now Jesus, because he was obedient, and we must remember this, because of his obedience, that one day, every knee, and we know this, will bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. That's all the realms. Not just where we're standing now. That's out there, here, down there. So it's um, so th- this time will come. We can be assured of that. Now, really, what Satan wanted there was to be worshipped. And remember, he's the one that said, "I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and finally, I will be like the Most High." And um, Satan's not just interested in me and you. He's not interested in this planet. Ultimately, he wants that position. That's what he wanted. That's why he felt aggrieved. That's why pride is such a dangerous thing. That uh, he considered himself higher than his position. And um, he wanted and desired what could not be his. And you can see there, you can see how pride is the root sin. And how dangerous it is when you think about these scriptures to every one of us. what does Jesus do? The final reply also from Deuteronomy. It's interesting that all these replies are from Deuteronomy. He says there forcibly get thee hence Satan for it is written thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Now we have that authority now and we know in James 4 verse 7 it says submit yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now I come from a Catholic background. I never was what I would call a good practicing Catholic. But I certainly know we were misled when we were told that holy water will deflect evil things or deflect Satan. That's, um, that's definitely not true. It's the word of God and it's the powerful weapons that work, not holy water. So, What was the aftermath? So we've come through these three trials. What was the aftermath? Well, Verse 11 says, then the devil leaveth him and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. The devil fears saints who pray and who wield the sword. The word of God. As I said already, he's a master of deception and deception can be very, very effective. He was defeated at Calvary. The scriptures are clear on that. But he operates by deception and by lies and by um, seducing people. And you know, we we live in a world now where there's an abundance of knowledge. And the more knowledge increases, I I think anyway, the easier it is to be deceived. Because no one person can actually grapple or grasp all that knowledge. And to actually be discerning, it's it's, it's difficult. And certainly in spiritual matters to be discerning, you need the Word of God. And uh, you know, deception is a very, very effective weapon still and uh, will be till the day he's dealt with. He's the master of deception. What's the best antidote to deception? What's the truth? Truth being the word of God, that's the best antidote. And we have his word, we have the truth. Now, angels, as I said, they're ministering spirits there for God's service and there is help for those who endure. And we see that here see that the angels, perhaps that Satan had just tried Jesus to call down to um, help him, they come now and minister to him. And there are examples in scripture where that's, we see that where angels minister to people in time of need. And um, I'm sure there are many accounts in the persecuted church and elsewhere where people have had angelic support and aid and have gone through great trial. We hear many accounts of that, so it's true. It still happens. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, again, Jesus has been fully God and fully man. He could have summed up, it says there, 12 legions of angels. But he chose not to. He chose to fulfill his calling and to go to the cross. And we thank God for that this morning. So to bring it to a summary, always good to have a quote. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis and it says that Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows, how, who knows to the full what temptation means. And um, he sees more than we see. We see to a level. But Satan, or sorry, Jesus knows more about the schemes of Satan and knows more about the adversary than we do. And um, and the temptation was more severe than ours will ever be. This trial for Jesus, it preceded his public ministry. So I guess there's the thought there that before we come into service or a point where we're useful for the Lord, we may also well be tested and refined to make sure that we're actually fit for purpose and fit for the, uh, the front line, as it were. Now, Satan's modus operandi, or his method of operation, it hasn't changed from the Garden of Eden, from the Judean Desert, or to Melbourne in 2019. It's still the same. He's still using the same schemes. And uh, again, if we're forewarned, we're forearmed. Be aware of these things. As good, we will be tempted, but it's our responsibility not to willingly put ourselves in danger. So we should think of the places we go the company we keep, what we let our eyes see, what we let our ears take in, and um, be, exercise discretion and be careful in what we do. I say that to myself as well, because um, I certainly have have erred on occasions and and watched things I shouldn't have watched and felt conviction after it. But it's a good thing actually to check and to to watch those things that come in and uh, can take root inside the, the being you know Pastor Werner talks a lot about the cinema has in the past about those things I'm not here to, to make a judgment of that but I do know that if you're balanced and you're reasonable you would say that the entertainment system or the entertainment that we, that's going on in the world is definitely gearing people up for the antichrist those types of images, the things we're seeing there's no, no doubt about it that um, we have to watch what entertainment we're taking in and be very, very careful. Because when the Antichrist comes, I guess the process will will have already taken place. Everything will have been prepared. And one of the ways that's going to happen is through day-to-day things like entertainment, like what we see, like what's going on around us, like what the government's doing, whatever. All those things will gradually, and when he comes to take, take hold, it'll be almost just instantaneous. It'll will, it will just slip in, as it were, because if the groundwork will have been done and everything will have been set up. So we need to be careful. Good illustration. If the cliff edge represents temptation and sin, go five metres in from the edge. <laughs> Stay away from the edge. And uh, that's for me also. And we check ourselves and just... And stay very clear of situations of temptation and evil. Whatever is of value is going to be tested in the refiner's fire. So don't be surprised. Little illustration of a, um, a father and son. And the father um, and son, they lived near a swimming spot, a river. And the father said to his son one day, this particular day, I don't know, the river may be dangerous, whatever. He said, I don't want you to go swimming today. Stay clear of the river. So the son listened and said, yes, father, yes, dad. But he took his trunks with him. And when his father came home, he went into his room and found the wet swimming trunks. He said, well, I thought I told you not to go swimming today. Well, he said, well, I brought my trunks, and when I got there, I couldn't resist <coughs> the temptation. So the message is, don't bring your trunks. So... <laughs> spiritually speaking so let's be encouraged today that we're not helpless but we do have a way out and you'll not be tempted more than you can bear so let's close in prayer yeah we thank you Lord for your word this morning Lord we thank you Lord that it's uh, good for us Lord and it's um, good for doctrine and reproof and all those areas Lord that uh, we need Lord and we just pray this morning that, that you will just cause us to be aware of what's going on around us and to check ourselves daily, to check ourselves against your standards and to be strengthened, strengthened in the word and strengthened in Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord. Is that-